This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Rome, Italy, where I've been spending a few days watching Mario Draghi try to form a new government. We talked about that last week, but for this week's edition, we're going to travel to New York, Hong Kong, and Paris. First, I check in with Richard Beals to hear what new disruptive behavior Tesla's founder Elon Musk is up to. His 800 billion car maker set a cat amongst the pigeons of finance earlier this week when it revealed plans to buy $1.5 billion of Bitcoin. As Richard points out, it's not just a novel way for a company to invest its liquid assets. It throws a bit of a monkey wrench into the gears of the accounting trade. Next, I talk about gambling, two types, with Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. One is the way investors are clamoring for plays on hydrogen, specifically how Japanese automakers are hoping to use the gas to power transportation. Katrina and I also talk about a story she wrote about James Packer's Australian casino empire, Crown Resorts, which is getting hit on a few fronts. Finally, Chris Thompson takes us through a few stories emanating from the Parisian financial community. Give a listen. So, Richard, you wrote a piece that was pretty popular with our readers this week about Elon Musk uh, creating yet a bit more disruption, this time in the, well, I don't know what you call it, the currency markets, the uh, <laughs> the entrepreneur's $808 billion electric car company on Monday said it's throwing a billion half into Bitcoin and may even accept the current cryptocurrency from buyers of its cars. Uh, how do you read this, Richard? Is this just him trolling us as he seems to do every day? Well, I mean, I, that's, I think that's part of it. I mean, obviously, the, the board has approved this for the company to do, so it's a little more serious than that. But, of course, if you mix Elon Musk and Tesla and Bitcoin, and um, you're bound to get a lot of uh, sort of social media interest. <laughs> right, well, what, what happened? What did, what did Bitcoin do when he came out, well, when Tesla came out and said they were going to do this? So Bitcoin's been on a bit of a march upward anyway, but it... It just, the news at least coincided with Bitcoin going to another new record. I haven't checked it today, but it went to approaching $50,000 in value, easily a record. Tesla's market cap went up by way more than the one and a half billion it's putting into um, Bitcoin. Not that that should even be the metric. So it's, it's all, it's all sort of meme. It's a meme currency and a meme stock and um, but, you know, there, there are some serious things underpinning it, like, is Bitcoin really catching on mainstream? I mean, Tesla wouldn't prove that, perhaps. But mm -hmm. if more companies started doing this and putting some of their resources into cryptocurrencies for whatever reason they might choose to rationalize, then, then it would become much more mainstream much more quickly. Yeah, but there is a question here. You, one of the things you point out is there's a slight, slightly odd accounting uh, question mark over this thing. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, when I started looking into this, it was it's actually really interesting. It seems to, so far to be a process of, of elimination. How a company that has put some money into Bitcoin is supposed to account for it? Um, it doesn't count as a, it doesn't count as cash. Uh, okay, so you buy 1.5 billion, you can't call it cash and just sort of, again, when we look at the enterprise value of that company and we say, ah, oh, you take it off, there's cash. And that's right, right, like exactly. Can't... Even though it's quite liquid, it's not super liquid, but quite liquid, you can't do that. Um, 
you can't it doesn't count as a currency it doesn't count is it a marketable security it doesn't count as that either um you know that has to do with questions of whether it is is or entitles you to ownership in some instrument you know the the this mm-hmm. distri- distributed cryptocurrency idea is that you know there isn't really ownership it's kind of interesting um so the only place the accountants are found to put it is in intangible assets which is where you also put things like brands and trademarks that that you acquire oh wait so t- okay so if you say it's a little like saying well the value of the tesla brand is x or let's say we buy a company and with the goodwill that we attribute to the brand potentially being an intangible asset yep that's exactly okay. it. that's exactly it but bitcoin is nothing like that it might be like any of the other things we mentioned it might be like a currency it might be like a stock it might be like gold physical gold or a gold fund but it's really not like a brand name huh so what are the implications of that like what are the what is the carrying value well so- i think the biggest implication is that one of the things about intangible assets is you as a company you initially record them at cost and the only thing the only way they can go on your balance sheet is down if they have what's called an impairment as in they become worth less than they they become clearly worth less than they were when you bought them mm-hmm. and obviously bitcoin has a trading value so it's easy to see the moments when it's less um so really the only thing that could happen is you either record this at cost or at a lower value you have to mark it down you can never mark intangible assets back up again so it could become if you bought a lot of bitcoin as a company it could become very misleading if the price goes up because you you'll never show that on your balance sheet that you're sitting on this asset that's now worth a lot more money of course if you're an analyst or you're an investor you could you could take a stab we know what what do we know what they paid for their 1.5 billion of bitcoin i assume they paid i mean, i think they were talking about putting 1.5 billion into bitcoin so that we assume uh, what well. I mean is, do we know what at price they bought the Bitcoin? Uh, we we may know when they first have to report this. This was a subsequent item after the year end, but they put it in their annual report for information. So we may know more the next time they report about that. Wow. Um, but it's, it is kind of interesting. I mean, it's not like accounts. You know, I think people especially ask these questions about fast growing companies like Tesla. It's not like accounts reflect reality the way we all wish they did but it's just one more way in which they may not fascinating well once again elon musk has uh, his his set a cat amongst the pigeons <laughs> <He's> sure <laughs> it's, uh, i mean you know he did it with the reddit guys a couple of weeks ago in the old robin hood trade he certainly has done it with the, the auto industry not to mention um spaceships I mean, what's next? What's the well, next? Well, I do frontier? think account. I mean, accounting is is kind of a funny place to imagine him dabbling, but it's you know rather than a process of elimination, it could mean these the the various committees that talk that figure out this stuff have to actually think about not you know where can we possibly stash this stuff that makes any sense within the current framework, but maybe thinking thinking again. Well, maybe cryptocurrencies are something different, and we have to think up a new way of dealing with that. Hmm, fascinating. Well, thank you, Richard. Sure. So, Katrina, you've written a couple of interesting stories, uh, sort of about gambling, if you will. One is about actual gambling, casinos down under, and it's about uh, the James Packer, who's well known, of course, in Australia, um, and a bit um, 
uh, has a bit of notoriety, it seems. But that the other one, the, the sort of big gamble you wrote about, which our readers seem really super interested in, is this question about uh, the Japanese automotive industry adopting hydrogen cars. Uh, that story you wrote was our top read on Tuesday. Um, how did you? What's going on with with hydrogen in Japan? Mm. Well, hydrogen is something Japan's been interested in for quite a long time. They had a first go at promoting this technology uh, back in 2014, um, but it didn't really take off immediately. It's it's only in the last few months that they've got really excited about it again because they're, they're chasing um, this net zero carbon goal. And some of the really big car companies have, uh, have got involved. Toyota has been making a, a hydrogen model for a while and now it's it's promoting that heavily. It was um, on the front of its PowerPoint when it released results today. Uh, Honda's another company that's getting involved. Um, and so I wanted to take a closer look at what was happening. Yeah, and one of the things, so you, you compared a bit with what happened with in China um, with the push into electric cars, um, but there's a big difference, isn't there? Yeah, there's a couple of big differences. Um, maybe start with the similarities, though. The reason yeah. I thought um, it's worth making that analogy is that a few years ago, when I started writing about electric vehicles in China, it was still kind of a niche thing, and a lot of people didn't believe in it. And now we have these Chinese companies like Neo, which have touched valuations of $100 billion. Because... I can't believe that. I remember when that was like <laughs> a couple of billion, right? And it was coming out, and we're like, mm. what is this thing? And now it's I mean, yeah. your story points out that they're a 93 billion US dollar market cap company. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it reminded me a lot of, of the very beginning of that process. But as you say, there are differences right now. It's still a niche technology. It's still really tiny. Even Toyota, which is an absolute giant, has only sold um, a little bit over 10,000 of its Mirai hydrogen vehicle cars. Yeah, so it's, there's, but is there a government initiative here? I mean, it seems to be that uh, the new prime minister, uh, Suga, has some commitment to this. Yeah, absolutely. So Suga's come in um, and he he's uh, given Japan the, the goal of getting to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And he's then um, tried to declare support for a lot of different technologies that will help Japan to get there. And hydrogen, hydrogen fuel transport is is just one of those. Um, so that means that the industry stands to benefit from um, this huge fund that he's set up to um, to pump money into these different initiatives. Uh, there should be subsidies for the, the car makers and um, probably a lot of help getting the infrastructure in place as well, mm -hmm. because much like with electric vehicles, this is, um, it's not going to work unless you have the appropriate fueling stations and the supply chains that uh, go along with that and all of these different pieces. Well, I guess the reason it's quite interesting that, that this store, this question of hydrogen technology is really quite uh, it's really it's a real growth area. I mean, we're, we've seen uh, this is your story again was one of our big reads. But as you point out, there's also there's also anyone sort of in this business seems to have gotten a big bump in the market. No. Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the automaker part of it is kind of a niche within a niche because um, hydrogen fueled passenger vehicles are a tiny thing, but um, hydrogen for commercial vehicles and hydrogen power plants and so on, um, that's the kind of stuff that these companies, um, Fuel Cell and Ballard, which I think you're alluding to, are involved in. Um, that's probably a, a little bit further on. Um, and, and so we've seen those stocks going 
absolutely nuts recently, much like the electric vehicle stocks. And indeed, by the time in the gap between me finishing writing that story and it going out into the world, we had to revise the figures in there quite dramatically because the stocks just kept going up. Yeah, fuel cell energy, you, you pointed out, has risen 1400% over the last year. By, by the time this was published, yeah, and I haven't checked in this morning, so <laughs> should probably have another look. It may, it may have bumped up another 1000% in the meantime, right? But I'm okay, so that's so that's a different kind of gambling. Let's 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 turn to the other story you wrote um, this week, which is about Crown Resorts, which is casino operator. Um, kind of an interesting thing. I mean, basically, the um, industry regulator uh, or an industry regulator regulators report called James Packer and not a suitable person to run a casino. I mean, the guy's a sort of kind of like, I don't know what, it, what he is, but he's sort of a household billionaire name in Australia now. Yes, so just to kind of be clear, what happened was that the regulator commissioned a report to look at the company and, and Packer, you know, within that. The report was made public this week and and it says that the, the company is not a suitable person. So it's, it, it's not just Packer, it's, it's the whole, the whole oh. shebang, which is worse really, because it means you can't just remove Packer from the equation. And, and the problems are, they're sort of they're big and there's many of them um it began with all kinds of questions over governance and anti-money laundering um guards the, the, there were some concerns some reports in the australian media um that they were really lacking and uh, as the inquiry went on it just seemed to to snowball and as you say packer is a huge character in australia and even though he stepped down from the board some time ago, it, it turned out he'd remained very actively involved and was receiving, you know, proprietary information and, and so on that, that put him in a, a very kind of a privileged position as an investor. But that's just one of many problems. That The problem that I highlighted in my piece today was, you know, separate and, and, and just as big. The, the report recommends that they stop working with uh, junkets, these organisations mm. that help Chinese VIPs travel and um, get get credit to gamble, which is a huge blow to their business because they were really excited about working with more uh, high rollers from China. That that was sort of um, the, the premise upon which they built this enormous new tower in Sydney for $1.7 billion. Right. And, uh, and now because of this report, they can't get a license to run it. But it is, I mean, tower. our Chinese... I can't imagine Chinese high rollers are able to get into Australia for COVID <laughs> other reasons. So, but it's a blow for the long-term uh, investment that they made on this, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a blow for the near term, the medium term and the long term, because near term, yeah, the, the Chinese travelers can't come in. In the, right. the medium term, you've got this terrible friction between Canberra and Beijing anyway. And now in the longer term, it's not really clear who's going to facilitate these visits and who's going to finance them too, because these high rollers are accustomed to gambling on credit. And as a casino, you don't necessarily want to be dealing with that yourself. It was quite nice to have um, that that sort of uh, the middleman, the junkets. Um, and uh, that's not an option anymore. It's quite interesting as well, because it's not just Australia that relies on that model. It's, it's something that um, is used in, in casinos all around Asia. Um, and I, I think there's sort of like a, a rising tide of concern about the way the junkets work. Is, um, it a, is it a concern from the from Beijing that they don't like this? This is just a bad behavior. I know, I mean, gambling, casino gambling is, a, is technically illegal under the Communist Party, but um, 
but it's tolerated, right? So is this sort of, or where is, is this coming from like individual, the re Australian regulators or the Japanese regulators are starting to say, we don't really like this idea. Where's the pressure? I mean, it feels like it's coming from all directions right now, but um, you're right that um, China doesn't like its citizens to gamble, except in extremely controlled circumstances like Macau, which is of course part of China. Um, and they're actually revising one of their laws right now to explicitly criminalize junkets and foreign casino organizations trying to solicit business uh, from Chinese citizens. So th there's pressure from the Australian regulator, specifically uh, the regulator controlling the Sydney property. There's pressure from Beijing. And the way that uh, the gambling industry works, when one regulator gets worried about something, the other regulators tend to take a look as well. So it kind of snowballs and spreads. Um, and I, I think that that could happen um, with this as well. Interesting. All right. So so two types of gambling, one the real thing, the other just speculation in the market. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you. So Chris Thompson, you've written a bunch of stories this week about uh, shifts in the French financial community. The first one is about Natixis being bought out by its uh, parent company. The other was about a, a passing of the baton at, uh, the, at, at Amundi, the largest asset manager in, in Europe. And then you also wrote a pretty uh, cheeky story about what BNP might do with its US business. Let's just go quickly through the news. So Yves Perrier has been the CEO and the architect of Amundi, uh, and he's now passing the torch to? Uh, Valérie Beauchamp, his uh, in May. So she'll come in and basically continue the work that he began. She's very much a continuity candidate, and that's underlined by the fact that he is not leaving the company. He is simply moving from being the longtime CEO to being the chair, or as some might call it, the backseat driver. Well, that's the problem with it. I mean, he's, as you point out in the, in the piece, total shareholder returns over the last five years uh, for Amundi clock in at 133%, well above peers like Schroeder's Standard Life Aberdeen. But the problem is there is a, a quite, a, it's a governance question that's raised by him taking on the chairman's seat, isn't it? That's quite right. It's, it's hardly best practice to, 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 to appoint the, the longtime CEO as your chair. I mean, the board has basically privileged continuity over more external scrutiny, perhaps even some fresh ideas. That is understandable because Yves Perrier's record is very, very good. And um, Madame Baudson is also a safe pair of hands by all accounts. Uh, it may even benefit her, the fact that Eve is still going to be there, particularly if she keeps doing deals. He did a couple of big deals. He bought um, Pioneer in Italy from Unicredit a couple of years ago, and he bought Spain's Banco Sabadell's asset management business. So she continues on the M&A warpath. Having him in the background may actually be reassuring. Well, that's the big thing, right? These They were basically created by grabbing the asset management divisions of banks and creating this this uh, company. And you've got a bunch of banks, you could argue, uh, DWS is owned by Deutsche Bank, has almost 800 billion euros. Um, you've got uh, something called Lixor, owned by Societe Generale. There's a bunch of these sort of, you could say, subscale asset managers that uh, Amundi might be in a position to consolidate. 
That's right. I mean, especially because one of one of Amundi's problems, I mean, it's a nice problem to have given that the company has been so successful, but, you know, it's got 1.7 trillion in assets under management, by far the biggest in Europe, but over half of those are still in France. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you take away Italy, i.e. its acquisition of Pioneer from Unicredit, um, it has just over a tenth of its assets in Europe. So arguably it can bulk up in Europe, passive, passive uh, I- I- investment assets. So that's uh, exchange traded funds and whatnot still only account for for about a tenth of its total AUM. So so it could bulk up there, too, if it wanted to take up by far the market leader in Europe in the form of BlackRock. What about, well, let's that, let's think also about Natixis, which is this sort of investment bank slash asset asset manager. It, it's just uh, been on the receiving end of a buyout from its largest shareholder. Uh, but they, I mean, why couldn't the asset management business there become part of Amundi? Well, I mean, there's no reason that it couldn't really, um, and and that's what I would argue that the takeout that the proposal of BPCE, which is Natixis's parent company, their, their existing majority shareholder, at four euros per share, or about 3.7 billion for the for the uh, for the stake they don't yet own, is 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 a pretty cheap takeout. It looks to me. You're getting one of the biggest asset managers in Europe. You're getting uh, a decent insurance business, a small payments business, and, and you add this. You you kind of do a sum of the parts calculation, and he's basically getting the investment bank uh, totally for free if they succeed. Right. So, well, so maybe you then sell off the uh, asset management business. Well, let, let me think, shift a bit gears here to BNP, which is the largest bank in France. Actually, I think it's what is it, the largest European bank by assets. Uh, you have an interesting piece that you wrote on the back of their results last week, which looked at their U.S. business, Bankwest, as it's called. What's the what's the idea? What, what Why is this? Why is this big French bank, which calls itself like Europe's bank or something, wants to be this European bank? What are they doing with all those assets tied up in the West Coast of the United States? Right, exactly. I mean, so BNP Paradise essentially wants to be like the JP Morgan of Europe, the dominant financial institution. I think the JP Morgan of Europe is JP Morgan. Right, right. Well, that's the problem. So they want to be they want to they they want to take on the their American cousin. Um, and, and they have this rather strange kind of slightly ill fitting bank based in San Francisco with um, nearly 100 billion in assets that funnily enough for the American market, which which generally delivers higher retail banking returns than the European market, doesn't really make much money for them. So the question that we just explored is like, well, what could they do with it? You had Spain's BBVA sold their U.S. bank a few months ago to PNC for a very healthy price. So if someone were to trot along, uh, maybe not Wells Fargo, because it's under all kinds of rules at the moment, but City or, or, or a regional U.S. player were to, were to offer something, you know, like 1.3 times book, like, like BBVA received, then, then, you know, what would BMP do with the money? It could, it could spend it on m and How much money would that um, be? That's something like $14 billion, right? It's something, yeah. So, so, so their most recent published book value was about was about twelve twelve billion US dollars or so. Okay. So that's a big chunk of change. Um, or failing that, you know, they could they could merge their their, their US bank with a bigger uh, regional US player and kind of take an equity stake. Or an even more radical option is that they could they could merge it with with the European uh, bank that also has kind of subscale US operations like. Uh, or, or maybe even Santander. So HSBC, 
a sort of HSBC merger with BNP, X Asia part, I guess, on HSBC, and then you end right. up bulking up. Yeah, or, or Santander, obviously, then you end up with, you know, a truly uh, European, across the board, European bank with a big business in the US from which you can you can drive lots of synergies. Right, that's exactly right. And the, the point is that their US bank, they don't need it. It gives them optionality uh, in in the M and A arena, if you will. Right. So it's their it's their calling card on the dance floor of consolidation. All right. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, look forward to more pieces about the shifts in the French financial community. Thank you, Rob. That's our show for the week. Thanks to Karen Kwok in London, Sharon Lam in Hong Kong, Amanda Gomez, and our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Of course, subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Arrivederci.